Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Before we begin, this episode contains reference to child sexual abuse from the very start. This time, ten years ago, one story above all appalled the country. The police currently have eight formal allegations against Sir Jimmy Savile, two of rape and six of indecent assault. But they say information is coming in all the time. The Savile affair was a symbol of how some of our best-known institutions had, over the years, turned a blind eye to, or even worse, covered up abuse. The culture of the BBC certainly enabled both Saville and Stuart Hall to go undetected for decades. At Stoke Mandeville and Leeds General, Jimmy Saville was given a bedroom and an office. At Broadmoor, Britain's high-security psychiatric hospital, he got his own set of keys. Under pressure to act, the authorities pursued a string of accusations against celebrities accused of child sexual abuse. Some were hard to credit, but true. From Rolf Harris, there were no words, no reaction, and no apology. As Gary Glitter arrived for sentencing today, gone were both the glamour and the rock. And soon the accusations began to be made against people who were or had been at the very heart of power. We know that some of the abusers are alleged to be senior military personnel, also law enforcement people, senior people and senior politicians. But by now, this outrage was morphing into a moral panic fueled by a media feeding frenzy which was itself fed by conspiracy theories. Throwing into doubt virtually every institution in the country and the kind of almost air of hysteria now. Of course they should have called me. And I would have told them exactly what they learned later on, that it was complete rubbish. Out of that crucible of genuine alarm and sometimes false accusation grew a national inquiry which on Thursday, eight years and over £180 million later, will publish its final report. So, has it been worth the effort? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the child abuse inquiry. What have we learned since Jimmy Savile? I am Sean O'Neill. I'm a senior writer at The Times. I'm looking at this subject, really, because I've reported on public inquiries and spent a lot of time on this one, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Okay, so, Sean, we'll call it Ixa from now on because we can't say the long name every single time. It was obviously set up in response to real public concern and headline cases of child abuse. Now, can you remind us about some of these great cases? It's almost impossible to remember that in the world before Brexit and COVID and the war in Ukraine and the economic meltdown back in 2012, 2013, 2014, there was a 
kind of moral panic about child abuse, which I think was triggered probably by the expose of Jimmy Savile as a, a serial sexual predator, but then became a kind of hysteria around the idea that there was some sort of establishment paedophile ring operating in Westminster. And you had extraordinary incidents like Tom Watson, then a senior Labour MP, standing up in Parliament confronting David Cameron. I want to ensure that the Metropolitan Police secure the evidence, re-examine it and investigate clear intelligence suggesting a powerful paedophile network linked to Parliament and Number 10. You've just reminded me of something which I'd forgotten, which was the time in which Philip Schofield confronted David Cameron on television around about this time with a list that had come off the internet. Yeah, yeah, a completely fictitious list. It took me about three minutes last night to continually find a list of the same names. Those are the names on a piece of paper. You yeah. know the names on that piece yeah. of paper. Will you be speaking to those people? No, no, I think, Philip, there is a danger, if we're not careful, that this can turn into a sort of witch hunt, particularly against people who uh, are gay. And on the back of that, you had a string of police investigations which culminated in 2014 with the announcement and development of Operation Midland, which was an investigation into supposed child murders by this establishment paedophile ring. That list was doing the rounds, as was something called the Dickens dossier, which was um, supposedly a a dossier that had been handed to the Home Office in the 80s about establishment paedophiles. And this stuff was swirling around, but it was taken up by the mainstream media and, quite importantly, taken up by Scotland Yard, by some of the most senior detectives in the country. So in 2014, Theresa May, because she was Home Secretary then, set up an inquiry in response. I can now tell the House that the government will establish an independent inquiry panel of experts in the law and child protection to consider whether public bodies and other non-state institutions have taken seriously their duty of care to protect children from sexual abuse. Now, like you, I was writing about it at the time, but probably not investigating it with quite such thoroughness. And I recall that they had great difficulty just getting somebody to chair it or keeping a chair for it. Can you take us briefly through that catalogue of uh, incidents? The first chair appointed to the inquiry was Dame Elizabeth Butler-Sloss, a learned judge. But within a week or two of her appointment, there was a furore about the fact that her late brother was Sir Michael Havers, the former Attorney General, who in the 1980s had been accused of not pursuing abuse cases with sufficient vigour. So Butler Sloss was gone in no time at all. She was replaced by a lawyer called Fiona Wolfe. Fiona Wolfe lasted only a short period as well, a few months, and she was then replaced by a New Zealand judge, Dame Lowell Goddard, as the third chairwoman. So for the time being, it's Dame Lowell Goddard in charge. And of course, the inquiry has to have a a structure. What was the rough structure of the inquiry under Lowell Goddard? Did it have a structure? I sometimes wonder if it had a structure. It was fast. (laughs) It was fast in its ambition. You know, it was talking about looking back to child abuse cases and child abuse scandals dating back to the end of the Second World War. So from 1945 until the present day, that was kind of its scope. And it really struggled with 
how on earth it was going to actually squeeze that into a public inquiry format and do it in a reasonable time frame. They broke it down into a series of broad topics and then within those topics they had specific investigations. So if you took the church, you had investigations into the Diocese of Birmingham, the Catholic Church. This is uh, investigations into the English Benedictine Congregation and its schools. And then in politics, you had an investigation into Westminster, you had investigations into Rochdale, into Lambeth and Nottingham as well in care homes there. So there were a huge number of individual investigations under the broader umbrella and then subheadings within that as well. The inquiry's scope was now established at last and then something happened. Something some of us thought was utterly predictable. Now, remember, as Sean said earlier, one of the catalysts for ICSA was Operation Midland. Like the inquiry, Operation Midland had started in 2014, but now, in 2016, it imploded. It was alleged that there was this Westminster paedophile ring that preyed on young children, particularly children in care, were taken to sex parties, abuse parties at Flats and Dolphin Square where they were abused by senior politicians, by figures from the military, by chiefs from the intelligence world. This story was luridly extraordinary and full of conspiracy and it was largely promulgated by a man who was initially known only as Nick and was later found out to be a guy called Carl Beach. And Beach told the Metropolitan Police and the media uh, a story that he had been abused, that he had witnessed child torture, that he'd witnessed child rape, that he'd witnessed children being murdered, and one child, he said, was run over deliberately in front of him by members of this um, paedophile ring. Met Police detectives invited Nick, a.k.a. Beach, to come in for interviews, and Operation Midland was launched. Nick has been interviewed over a long period of time by experienced detectives from the Child Abuse Command. And he has also met investigator from the Murder Command. They and I believe what Nick to be saying is credible and true. So yes, we do believe what Nick is saying. And the problem with Carl Beach's story was that it was a complete lie from start to finish. He had fabricated this story and the investigation found nothing to corroborate anything Beach had said. It was then turned into an investigation into Carl Beach himself and his perversion of the course of justice, which uncovered the fact that he'd uh, had a lot of child abuse images on his computer. And Beach, in the end, went on trial, was jailed, and Operation Midland collapsed. And if you were sitting in the inquiry room, as I was sometimes, you were thinking, how does this inquiry conduct itself now when the catalyst for setting it up is proven to be a lie? And yet, yet it did, and it continued. Um, did Dame Lowell Goddard last very long? Now, around the time the police investigation was collapsing, Lowell Goddard's credibility was collapsing as well. There was a quite notorious hearing where... She asked for help with the local law and there was this kind of disbelief that she hadn't got her head around basics of the legal process That and she was the chair of the inquiry. And then we revealed in the Times that she'd spent 
most of the previous year, not in London, but back home in New Zealand. And then behind the scenes, while that was being exposed, her panel of experts that she was working with were going to the Home Office saying they had real concerns about her ability to run the inquiry. And very suddenly, in the middle of 2016, she resigned and they were without a chair once again. Right. So who did they get? They turned to Professor Alexis Jay, not a lawyer, but a social worker. And she stepped in and she has kept the show on the road. So at the point where uh, Alexis Jay takes over, has any evidence actually been heard? No. It's been sitting for two years, had four chairs, cost tens of millions of pounds already and hasn't had a single day of evidence and I think doesn't conduct its first public evidence sessions until February 2017. So it's long delayed. There are questions as to whether it should be wound up. This question comes up again and again and survivors groups who had placed a lot of store in this inquiry start to lose faith in it. Quite famously, the Shirley Oaks Survivors Association, who were survivors of the abuse at care homes in Lambeth in South London. They were a big group, a very vociferous group. They pulled out of the inquiry very publicly and said, we don't want anything to do with it anymore. We've lost faith in it. There have been too many resignations, too many scandals. Coming up, ICSA is under new management and not even the royal family or the Vatican will escape its scrutiny. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Kat Lay, health editor at The Times. Our health coverage spans everything from how the way we live can raise or lower our risk of diseases, to advances in medical treatment, to the problems facing the NHS and their potential solutions. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Now, despite its early setbacks, the inquiry does go on to make reports, quite a few of them. What are some of the headline findings to have come out in those reports? In the end, although the, the final report is coming up on the 20th of October, they've already published 19 separate investigation reports. Once we got beyond the scandals, I think Jay actually succeeded in having the inquiry sort of settle down and do some serious work. And I think particularly in the field of the Catholic Church and the Church of England, we did discover things we didn't know. For example, the investigation into the Benedictine schools, Ampleforth and Downside, the inquiry found some quite extraordinary things. It said monks in both institutions were very often secretive, evasive and suspicious of anyone outside the English Benedictine congregation. Safeguarding children was less important than the reputation of the church and the well-being of the abusive monks. And I was struck by one incident they reported on uh, when a, a senior cleric at Downside uh, School in 2012 had loaded up a wheelbarrow full of staff files from teachers and staff members in the 1980s, taking them into a distant part of the Abbey Gardens and set fire to them. Whoa. I know, it was quite an extraordinary revelation. We also had an extraordinary situation where the then Prince of Wales was required to give evidence to the inquiry about his relationship with uh, Bishop Peter Ball. He had been a very close friend of the Prince of Wales and their friendship had persisted for many, many years after Peter Ball had been cautioned for gross indecency with a young man in the early 1990s. Any message for the victims? Well, I'm always very, very, very sorry. Ball was eventually convicted and jailed in 2015 when he was an old man, and he's dead now. But it wasn't only after his conviction that Prince Charles disowned him. We now turn to the letter from His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales to this inquiry. Dear Professor Jay, thank you for inviting me. To and he had given evidence to the inquiry in writing that he didn't understand what a criminal caution meant. And then later we were given extracts from the then Prince's correspondence with Peter Ball. The 16th of February 1995, the Prince of Wales to Peter Ball. I wish I could do more. I feel so desperately strongly about the monstrous wrongs that have been done to you and the way that you've been treated. If it is any consolation, the Archbishop has written me a letter between you and me in which it is also clear that he is frightened of the press. So you found that the prince was very much on the side of the bishop, who was a predatory sex offender. Prince Charles wasn't the only one, was he? There were a whole slew of important people who had been, I don't know what you'd say, taken in by this very charismatic and sympathetic man yes. of the cloth. Yes, you had judges and senior members of parliament actually writing to the police and the DPP and all those appealing for leniency for Peter Ball, saying what a, a wonderful spiritual man he was and suggesting that there was a malicious campaign against him when actually it, it was Ball who was the evil character in this story. I think because he was a, a, an establishment figure and he had friends in high places, he manipulated those people to try and defend himself. 
Now, while the inquiry knocked the idea of a a Westminster paedophile ring on the head, that doesn't mean that it didn't point to some instances of politicians being involved. There was an investigation strand into Westminster, and it looked at a number of quite extraordinary cases, including Sir Peter Heyman, the former spy chief, who had been caught with obscene material and managed to escape any serious punishment. But uh, I was really struck by the case of Peter Morrison. Peter Morrison was a Conservative MP, a drunk, and he's dead now, and was known by the whips in his own party to have, as they put it in one quote, a penchant for small boys. MI5 were aware of this. They were aware that when Morrison was a minister and might be going overseas, that he might be vulnerable to blackmail, particularly by the KGB in in, in the 1980s. And MI5 wrote memos warning Thatcher about Sir Peter Morrison's interest in children. Thatcher didn't want to know. She later promoted Morrison to be her PPS And an MI5 witness told the inquiry, if the Prime Minister knew of the allegations, was not particularly on the face of it concerned about them, if this is a true account of the situation, then there would be little point in MI5 investigating them further. So Morrison uh, was let off the hook and never really pursued. In terms of its recommendations in previous bits of the report, are any of them of significance? I spoke to someone the other day who was involved in the very first investigation, which was the forced child migration after the Second World War, where children of single mothers and children from poor families were swept up and sent off to farm schools in Australia and schools in Canada. And many of them suffered appalling physical and sexual abuse. Former child migrant David Hill broke down as he gave evidence. The second thing I hope this inquiry can do is promote an understanding of the long-term consequences and suffering of those who were sexually abused. Many never recover. One early recommendation came out of the inquiry was that those survivors of that scandal should benefit from a, a redress scheme and the government set up that scheme and people have received payments and some sort of justice after a very long time. But I think what this inquiry is really hinging on and what its reputation will either sink or swim on is whether it makes a recommendation that there should be a scheme for mandatory reporting of child abuse, whether there should be a legal obligation for people in positions of power and trust and influence in schools and sports clubs and churches to report to the authorities when they suspect that child abuse is happening. The the belief is if you put that legal obligation in, you strengthen the ability of people to blow the whistle, you weaken the ability of church leaders and headmasters and other people to conduct cover-ups and hopefully a legal sanction if you don't blow the whistle. This seems to me to be very important. People will be surprised that there hasn't been such a mandate. And yet, of course, institutions essentially have governed themselves when it has come to reporting cases of child abuse to children in their care. 
It's been quite extraordinary. I mean, if I take you back to one of the Benedictine stories, the St. Benedict School in Ealing, which was attached to Ealing Abbey in, in West London. The inquiry's report on that in 2019 said there was a culture of excessive corporal punishment. Physical abuse in many cases was used as a platform for sexual gratification and a means by which to instigate sexual abuse. I remember with my colleague David Brown banging on about this school in 2010. We wrote a series of oh. articles about it. We reported on the abbot at the time, Lawrence Soper, going on the run, skipping bail and just disappearing, the police searching all over Europe for him. And he was eventually found. But what the inquiry discovered was that church authorities had known all along where he was and had not disclosed this to the police in the UK who were hunting for him. And they knew where he was because he had a Vatican bank account and he was getting regular payments to his hiding place from his Vatican bank account. Now, the inquiry tried to get information from the papal nuncio, the Vatican's ambassador to the UK about this. And the, the Vatican simply refused to cooperate with that inquiry. Simply point blank said, we won't cooperate. After Ixler's report was published, the Vatican challenged the Met Police over claims they hadn't cooperated with the investigation. A spokesman told the Catholic newspaper The Tablet that they informed the English authorities and this has been instrumental for the arrest of SOPA in Kosovo. That's why I think there has to be a duty put on people in these institutions a legal requirement for them to report when they know that there is abuse and when there is cover-up and when there is scandal. So that would be good, but it does look as if there have been some failures as well. You mentioned Ampleforth College. Mm. Ampleforth College is still going. This is where I question, will anything change and can anything change? Ampleforth was very strongly criticised in the ICSA report into the Benedictine schools. They said... It is clear to us from all the evidence we have heard during this inquiry that several systemic and child protection challenges remain at Ampleforth to this day. Now, Ampleforth is a very important school. To some people, it's known as the Catholic Eton. It has, subsequent to this inquiry, continued to fail safeguarding inspections by Ofsted. For a while, it was banned from, from accepting any new pupils because of its safeguarding problems. But it remains open, partly because it has friends in high places. It has a, an advisory board, a small ad hoc committee chaired by Lord Moore of Etchingham, Charles Moore, the former editor of The Telegraph and a close friend of Boris Johnson. And I think it has people in positions of power and influence who are keeping it open when a public inquiry like this has raised serious questions about its future. Stories of Our Times spoke to the headmaster, Robin Dyer, after Ixa's report on Ampleforth was published in 2020. It's exactly because yeah. of the past failings that we've undergone a fundamental transformation over the last two years. Failures of the past have been the strongest possible spur for us to, to make those changes. We recognise that we can't possibly put right the wrongs of the past. But what we are determined to become, as I think I've hopefully made clear to you, uh, to be the best we can be in safeguarding policy and practice. David Steele, the former Liberal Democrat leader, he was strongly criticised for his handling of child abuse allegations against the former MP, the late Cyril Smith. He was accused of an abdication of responsibility and not taking action against Cyril Smith. 
and accused of turning a blind eye to Smith's paedophile behaviour. And he stood down, but he went, I think he was in his 80s when he stood down, and he was clearly annoyed that he'd been, I think, made to feel like he was a proxy for Cyril Smith, that he was carrying the blame for something else. Well, actually, he ended up being the proxy for just about everybody, didn't yeah. he? Because he was the only senior politician, yeah. senior kind of leading figure, secular figure, that got yeah. that treatment. Yeah, yeah. No, Nobody else. Do you think it was just too wide a remit that the inquiry was given? I think it was always too big. It was huge. You're looking at 50, 60 years of scandals and some of those scandals, as I mentioned, they could have been public inquiries on their own. Would it not have been better to have run the inquiries parallel and got to the end a little bit quicker? Because it's been eight years and we are sitting here having a conversation about has it told us anything we didn't know already? Don't you think it's a bit of an achievement for this inquiry just getting to the end? Um, yes, <laughs> I think that's probably its main achievement. And I think there is something to be said for Alexis J persisting, almost resetting the dial and saying, despite all the flack, we're going to keep going. Earlier this week, we heard about the post office inquiry where sub-postmasters were wrongly sent to prison. That and ICSA are just two of the high-profile public inquiries going on right now, and it's a costly business. I've been totting this up. ICSA cost £180 million at least. I think the second most expensive public inquiry after the Bloody Sunday inquiry. There are currently 15 live public inquiries. My calculations are that they have cost more than £600 million since 2014. And I'm really, really struck by one of them, the longest sitting public inquiry, which it finished its hearings in 2018. It still hasn't produced a report. It's something called the Edinburgh Tram Inquiry. Um, Ah. It's cost 13 million quid, and you love the remit. David, its remit includes this inquiry aims to establish why the Edinburgh tram project incurred delays, cost more than originally budgeted, and through reductions in scope, delivered significantly less than projected. Sean, I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. You could have a public inquiry into why has this public inquiry (laughs) been delayed, cost too much, and delivered nothing. The other thing I should mention as well, as ICSA draws to a close... We are seeing the start of another mammoth, mammoth public inquiry, the COVID inquiry, which already the victims groups are saying they feel marginalised. And it is following a very similar model to ICSA. It is splitting it into modules. It feels to me already slightly like it's going to become a legal circus. You know, I, I read a report that government departments have already signed contracts with law firms worth 85 million for legal advice in the COVID inquiry. Will it tell you anything the Sunday Times inside team hasn't told you already? Well, it should do, because what it should do is learn the lessons from the pandemic and the way it was handled in Britain so that we can handle things better. 
because you've covered so many public inquiries, I imagine that there are some that you could point to that have been models of getting the thing done, finding the thing out that you need to find out, making recommendations, and those recommendations actually being acted upon. The most effective public inquiry that I've reported on was the Bichard inquiry. And that was Michael Bichard. He was tasked with investigating the aftermath of the Soham murders, uh, the murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman by Ian Huntley. To, to be fair to some other inquiries, Bichard's focus was relatively narrow. But he went about the task with a pretty firm determination and vigor and I've spoken to him recently about how he ran it and he said he was determined that the lawyers wouldn't take it over. He was determined to do it within a, a very short time frame and he was determined to produce a report that was readable, that it was understandable to everybody, that it was simple and direct. And then I think most crucially of all, and I think this is what is lacking in a lot of public inquiries, Bichard hung around. He conducted further hearings after his inquiry was over to focus on the implementation of his recommendations. Hmm. And I think the, the key issue that doesn't get addressed is the implementation of recommendations after the event. Uh, Bichard himself said to me, what's the point of producing a report and putting it out there if you don't also ensure that something happens with that report? final report is expected on Thursday. And what will happen to the recommendations of this £186.6 million eight-year-long inquiry will decide whether it was worth holding at all. If you've been affected by issues raised in this episode, you can call Victim Support's 24-7 support line on 0808 been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, senior writer at The Times, Sean O'Neill. You can read more about ICSA's final report when it's published this week at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Sam Chantarasak, the executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimesatthetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.